We have been looking at the building of the wall in the book of Nehemiah, and there has been opposition from the outside very clearly every step of the way. In chapter 5, we see what I believe was a greater threat, and that was a threat from within. There was division within the city of Jerusalem, and it really threatened to hinder the work. And so Nehemiah deals with that. In chapter 5, going to begin reading at verse 6 and read through verse uh, 13. And Nehemiah says, Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our own ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money of the grain the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his home and from his possession who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work there in that city of Jerusalem as that wall that had been destroyed was, was being rebuilt. And thank you, Lord, for your work within the hearts of the people, the builders, as there was a real dangerous threat from within. So, Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word this morning. ask that you would teach us, O God, guide us into your truth. Uh, We believe your word is everlasting truth. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. In 1958, there was a small community in northeast Pennsylvania that put up a brand new little red brick building that housed their police department, their fire department, as well as their city hall. When the building was completed, they had a ribbon-cutting ceremony, and there were about 6,000 people there, about the entire population of the city. I mean, it was a huge, huge undertaking and a great event for that community. However, within a few months, they began to notice some cracks on the side of of the building. And sometime later it was noticed that the windows wouldn't shut all the way. And then they discovered the doors wouldn't close correctly. The floor was shifting and leaving ugly cracks. The roof began to leak. And within a few months it had to be evacuated. 
to the embarrassment of the builders, as well as the disgust of the taxpayers, putting all this money into this beautiful building and it was literally falling apart. Well, there was a firm that did an analysis and they discovered that there was a mine several miles away and they were doing some blasting in that mine in that mine and slowly imperceptibly nobody could see but the very foundation of that building was crumbling <laughs> and sooner or later it, it became evident to everyone there there was something seriously wrong so i read that story i couldn't help but think of what was going on here in chapter 5 of nehemiah the wall around Jerusalem was going up and by outward observation everything looked wonderful. However, there was something going on inside the city which was a whole different story. There was strife among the people and it really was beginning to shake the foundation of God's work of building that wall. Something had to be done. And God used Nehemiah to confront that situation. And to cause the people to turn to Jesus, turn to God in repentance of their sin. As Nehemiah became aware of this threat from within, there were three things that he knew that needed to be done. And the first thing is this, that sin must be confronted. That had to be dealt with. And the first step is always that it needed to be confronted. As you read how Nehemiah describes the problem, especially in the first five verses, you almost wonder if you're reading in the Wall Street Journal. Because it talks about uh, debt, it talks about inflation, it talks about high taxes. <laughs> uh, sounds like an article you might find today. Listen to what it says. Verse 1, There was outcry, a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses, that we might get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We've borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is like the fresh flesh of our brothers. Our children are like their children, yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now, what a, what a tragic situation. No wonder there was a great outcry, and the sad thing about it is that this was a problem they had at least partly brought upon themselves. Now, Warren Wiersbe makes this comment. He said, they weren't crying out against the Samaritans or the Ammonites or the Arabs, but against their own people. Jew was exploiting Jew and the economic situation had become so desperate that even the wives who usually kept silent were joining the protest. So here was something within the city that was really threatening the work. Division. Amongst the people that were building. It kind of reminds me of the New Testament church in Jerusalem. For chapters 3 through 5, you had this opposition from the outside. There was persecution that came upon the church. But then you come to Acts chapter 6, and you find out that there was division within. Some of the widows were being neglected 
and the daily distribution of food. And I believe that was a greater danger. There will always be opposition from the outside, but when there is division within, I think that's a more dangerous thing. And the early church understood that, and they dealt with that situation. And it was a great day for the church. Now, if you consider what the Old Testament says about these things, you realize they were living in disobedience to God's Word. They were not to charge interest on a loan amongst the Jewish people. They could make a loan, but they were not to charge interest. And they were also not to enslave a fellow Israelite, but they were doing that anyhow. And that's why we find that in verse 6, where Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry. Now, the Hebrew word for angry here means to burn within. And it really gives us a picture of Nehemiah's hatred for sin. He was indignant over the fact that people were suffering because of the sins of others. And he was not going to stand for that. Something had to be done. (laughs) And he was willing to do it. It Reminds us of Jesus, right? When he came into the city of Jerusalem and he saw all the buying and the selling in the temple, he came there with a whip and he overthrew the tables of the money changers and drove them out. What do we call that? Righteous indignation, right? That's what Nehemiah had. It was not a sinful anger. This was righteous indignation against something that needed to stop. Or it would cause great division among the people. Billy Sunday was this kind of a man with, with righteous indignation. I tell you, he was willing to, to call sin, sin. And one time he said this, I am against sin. I'll kick it. As long as I got a foot, I'll fight it as long as I got a fist, I'll butt it as long as I have a head, I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth, and when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it (laughs) until I go home to glory and sin goes home to perdition. (laughs) That's Nehemiah. He wasn't going to stand for it. He wasn't going to overlook what was causing division among the people of God. He confronted it head on. And thank God there are men like him who are willing to confront sin. How did he do that? Well, notice he did it with the right spirit. Even though he was very angry because of what was going on, he did not lash out in a fit of rage. He didn't lose control and just start you know, beating people. Verse 7 says... I consulted with myself, he says. What would that suggest? Nehemiah was not a control. Even though he was very angry, he didn't make things worse by just, you know, exploding and causing greater trouble. Uh, Most people, if you haven't noticed, don't respond to rebuke no matter how you do it. But if you do it in anger, great anger, you don't have control of your spirit... What does that do? It just adds fuel to the fire. So even though there was anger there, he wasn't out of control. Reminds us of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. It says, be angry and yet do not sin. So there is a good anger, isn't there? There is a righteous anger. 
And maybe some of us Scandinavians need to learn what a righteous anger is, right? We're just, oh yeah, well, whatever, whatever. We'll just, yeah, that's a no big... Nehemiah wasn't that kind of guy. But he did it in right spirit. He had control of his own emotions. He also did it for the right reasons. One reason he confronted sin, because sin caused problems. Look at the pain that it brought into the lives of these people. Verse 8, I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, he asks the question, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Okay, they were redeemed. Now, are we going to make them our slaves? Is that what we're going to do? Make our brothers our slaves? And the end of verse 8 says they were silent and couldn't find a word to say. What could they say? They knew they were wrong. They, they had no excuse. They, they had nothing to say. And he also confronted them with their sin because of what sin does to dishonor God and His people. Verse 9, again I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations? What's Nehemiah saying? You're going to live this way? Then you're going to call yourself the people of God? Then the nations are watching what's going on in Jerusalem and they're saying, hmm, kind of interesting behavior for the people of God, huh? Selling their daughters and sons as slaves to fellow Jews? Charging interest when they shouldn't be doing it? You can see why Nehemiah addressed that situation. Raymond Brown said Israel had been entrusted with a unique testimony to the nations. They were not only to declare what God is like, but to manifest those qualities in their lives. If their pagan neighbors saw them behaving cruelly towards their own people, how could they possibly be persuaded of the uniqueness and reality of Israel's distinctive faith? Who would believe that Israel's God was kind, merciful, and compassionate when His worshipers were cruel, merciless, and mean towards the people He loves? What a poor testimony that would be to the nations. Yeah, we're the people of God. We love the Lord. Then... We don't love each other. We don't treat each other kind in, in the fellowship of believers. So sin needed to be confronted, didn't it? This could not be allowed to go on. And there are times when we need to confront sin. Are we willing to confront it? And maybe another question, are we willing to be confronted? When we need to be confronted, huh? So there's the first thing. Sin must be confronted. The second thing we learn here is that sin must be corrected. It must be dealt with. After confronting the people of Jerusalem, Nehemiah made it clear that they needed to correct their behavior. They needed to make restitution. In other words, if they were sorry for their sin, sorry for what they had done to others, they needed to restore what was taken. Look at verse 11. Nehemiah says, Please, Give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are taking from them. Nehemiah was calling for quick 
and decisive action. And they responded (laughs) wonderfully. Verse 12, then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. Now, that's wonderful when that happens, isn't it? When sin is confronted and the people say, you are right, Nehemiah. We will do exactly as you say. That's a sign of God's work, isn't it? And sin is confronted and repented of and turned from. That's a sign of the work of God. That's what we saw in the life of Zacchaeus, right? When the Lord changed his heart, what did he say? I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have wronged anyone, I will restore him fourfold. <laughs> Something had happened in the heart of Nehemiah, or in the heart of Zacchaeus. Something was happening in the heart of the people here. They said, exactly, you are right, Nehemiah. We will do exactly as you have said. But you know what? Nehemiah knew the heart of man. And he knew that it's one thing to say, I'm sorry for my sin. I will restore what I've taken. It's another thing to actually do it. And so he is going to hold them accountable. Okay? You've said you're going to restore it. So he calls on the priests. In verse 12, so I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Holding them accountable. This is what you said. So here's the oath you make before the priests saying, I'm going to actually do what I said I will do. What do we call that? The pressure of accountability? Is there a certain amount of pressure that is placed upon us? when we know that others are going to hold us accountable for our promises that we make? Maybe it'll cause us to take our promises a little more seriously if we'll be held accountable, right? And that's what Nehemiah did. And if that wasn't enough, he gave them a pretty clear warning of what would happen if they failed to keep their promise. Look at verse 13. He says, I also shook out the front of my garment... And I said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? They weren't saying Amen to something wonderful. They were saying Amen that if we don't carry out this promise, we agree that this should be the result. Kind of an interesting time to say amen, huh? And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Isn't that good? They didn't just say, yeah, we're wrong. They didn't just say, yeah, we'll do it. What a novel thing. They actually did it, huh? <laughs> they carried out that, that promise. Now, Raymond Brown gives this helpful comment on this Uh, shaking out the garment. He says, Judea's Judea's greedy nobles would not regard the shaking of Nehemiah's robe as an eccentric public act intended merely to drive home the point. So it it wasn't just, you know, here's an illustration. He says, it was a visible as well as audible public warning that if they did not keep this promise, they would certainly become as destitute as the poorest man or woman in Judea, shaken out and empty, 
robbed of property and possessions. So what did Nehemiah want them to understand? He wanted them to understand that you don't play games with God. Especially when you make a promise, right? What does Ecclesiastes say? When you make a vow to God, don't be a fool not to keep that vow. Why? Because God takes no pleasure in fools. You make a promise, you keep it. And that's what Nehemiah was telling these people. Okay, you've wronged your brothers. You said you're going to do what's right. You better do it. You better do it. Because when God makes a promise, or when you make a promise, God expects you to keep it. He's a pretty firm guy, this Nehemiah, isn't he? Not afraid to confront. Not afraid to correct what needed to be corrected. And then the third thing we notice, sin must not only be confronted and corrected, but Nehemiah teaches us that sin must be avoided. Turn away from it. As we come to the end of the chapter now, we we see one of the reasons why God used Nehemiah in such a mighty way. His aim was to live a godly life, and it is seen then in how he refused to use his position... For personal gain. At this point in the story, we're told something about Nehemiah that that we didn't know before. He hadn't just been sent by King Artaxerxes to build the wall. The king had also, if you look at verse 14, had appointed Nehemiah to be the governor. Look at verse 14. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah... From the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. So, having been appointed governor, Nehemiah had power, right? He could have done basically what he wanted to do. And when you consider that former governors of Judah had used their position for personal gain, it would have been very simple, very easy for Nehemiah to just continue that practice. But he didn't. Look at verse 15. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. You see, Nehemiah knew that he couldn't take advantage of his position by burdening others because this is the sin that he had just confronted, didn't he? He had just confronted that sin in the lives of the officers and the nobles if he told them not to do it. And he certainly shouldn't have done it himself And he didn't. He was committed, as we would say, to practice what he preached. Okay, don't take advantage of others. He didn't do it either. He avoided that. He turned away from that temptation as a ruler to take advantage of the people. Practice what we preach, huh? Remember my dad telling me one time he had gone to a wedding anniversary celebration in a home? And he knew the couple and packed. There were a lot of people in there, people he didn't know, and conversation going on. And 
He wanted to share some scripture, but he said it was just like the devil was sitting on my lap and saying, no, not here. This is not the right time. This is not a good place. No, 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 no. Finally, he stood up and opened his Bible and identified himself. because A lot of people there didn't know who he was. And he said, I could just share a few words of scripture and have prayer for this couple who was celebrating this anniversary. So he did that. Well, there was like a a breezeway, you know, just outside the door entrance. And there was a lady sitting out there. And as my dad walked out to go to the car, she said, Pastor Franz, I've been listening to you on the radio. And I know you've been talking about witnessing. I was wondering if you were going to practice what you preach. My dad says, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> thank you, Lord, for, for giving me the courage to share at a time when it would have been very easy to just, you know, merrily walk out. Are you going to practice what you preach? Nehemiah did that, right? He practiced what he preached. And you know why he did it? If you look at the end of verse 15, he says, But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Because of the fear of God. What was it? It was his relationship with God. That's what made the difference in his life. Same for us. It's our relationship with God that makes the difference. When we fear God. When we know the Lord, when we know Jesus, that changes the way we live. It gives us a hatred for sin. And at the same time, a love for people. That was Nehemiah. He had a hatred for sin. Why? Because he had a love for the people of God. He knew what that was doing to their lives and and their testimony before the world. That's how you could summarize the life of Nehemiah. Hatred for sin because he feared God and loved God's people. May God do that work in us, right? Make us like Nehemiah. Fearing the Lord and loving people. Willing to confront when it needs to be. Willing to correct when that needs to take place. Willing to be corrected when that needs to take place. All because of our relationship with God. We love the Lord and we love people. That makes a difference then in the way that we live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for men like Nehemiah who saw the danger, Lord, of division within. Lord, help us to see that as well and not allow that to take place. To be willing, Lord, to to be united together, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, caring for them, providing for them. Lord, do that work in our midst, day by day, as we live out our faith in view of a world that needs to see the difference that you make in our lives. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.